say it's recording. Yep, it says Perfect. you are recording the call. Yep. Uh, yep, I have to tell you that legally. I'm not going to do anything with it, I promise. Uh, well, not, <laughs> you know, I might put it on the dark web or so. I don't think anyone would be that interested. But no, I don't. Well, no exactly. Um, uh, so, look, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, if the, if the video gets bad, then we'll turn the video off. And because okay, cool. then the audio, um, the audio works better if the video is going uh, uh, messy. Right. So, I yeah, right. All right. Let's crack on. You ready? Yep. Absolutely. And I'm not going to broadcast the video. I'm just going to rip the audio from the video. So, um, you know, if you want to pick your nose or <laughs> we're not going to. I'm only joking. Joe. You're, you're, I would never think you would do that. Right. Ready. Steady. Let's go. So, um, welcome to episode seven uh, of the Core Kinetic podcast. As usual, I can never actually remember which episode it is. It's seven, I think, is a fairly educated stab in the dark guess at which number we're up to. I should probably check that out before I uh, announce the podcast, but I never do anyway. Uh, this week, month, episode, I have the fantastic Joe Gibson with me today hi joe how are you hi ben i'm great thank you very much good to be here yeah i know i am going to give you an in-depth grilling today no i'm not really we're just going to have a <laughs> a, a light-hearted um conversation about the biopsychosocial model excellent always happy to have a chat about that I know. Look, I mean, I, I think today, you know, one of the reasons I've asked you to come on today is because um, I really like uh, your perspective on the biopsychosocial model. It aligns quite well with mine. I much prefer to have people that stroke my biases than don't, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's just a thing anyway. Um so before we get going and get into the nitty gritty of, of the, the BPS model framework, people get their panties in a wad about that sometimes. But um, before we get going, Joe, could you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do for those that don't know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I'm Joe Gibson. I'm a clinical physiotherapy specialist working at the Liverpool Upper Limb Unit, um, which is in the NHS in Liverpool, surprisingly, in the UK. And I've Worked there as a specialist in patients with shoulder pain and instability since uh, 1995 in that current role. So I am as old as I look. Um, we well, can't see clearly because there's no video, but that's probably just as well right now. Uh, we'll um, do a screenshot, Joe. <laughs> oh, thanks, <man. laughs> I should put a better top on. Um, so, yeah, so that's my main job. I do that 27 hours of the week and that's kind of problem solving, an ESP role, a clinical specialist role, fought very hard to keep the clinical specialism rather than just become a kind of ESP. Um, and I love that. And I work with an orthopedic team and a great team of physios. I also do private practice, um, which is anything. People search you out on the Internet, doing lots of online stuff at the moment, but also do some sports consultancy, which is fun. Makes my kids think I'm cool because I can name a few footballers. Um, and I also do my teaching and teach some courses. So, yeah, I, I have a, a fun life packed with lots of different aspects. So feel very lucky but and see a real kind of spectrum of different patients. Yeah, I, I think for me, that's always been something that uh, has really kind of almost kept me in the game almost is having a variety of stuff to do. I don't know how I'd fare these days with just doing one 
part of all those different things. And as you say, I think it's important to keep us excited and interested and also a little bit up um, to date as well. So, look, Joe, let me dive in and ask you our first question and then we can kind of do a little back and forth on it. So when we, you know, the biopsychosocial model is something that we hear discussed all the time. You know, there's lots of discussion that goes on around what it is and what it isn't and and these kind of things. And, you know, we, I, how many times do you kind of read? I, I read lots of research, as I know you do as well. And you kind of, you know, read it in a paper or in a blog or whatever. When people talk about this biopsychosocial approach or this biopsychosocial model and I very very rarely actually see it um, defined and if you look in a research paper they'll put a reference in and it will go back and it will just say the biopsychosocial model and you go and check the next reference and you're kind of diving back and you never actually find out what it is anyway so uh, I think my first question to you is Joe how do you view um, the biopsychosocial model and what informs that perspective you know where did you pick that up from what's uh what's the underlying collateral there oh yeah well that and, and that probably that that is a key question as to why I got so interested in the in the first place basically when I did my master's I was looking for certain things to do I had great intentions of doing some sort of research project but as anybody who's done a master's realizes that's not always terribly practical so I ended up actually doing a narrative review looking at the history of the biopsychosocial model and how it had been applied into practice and actually really got fascinated in terms of basically it had never been applied the way it was intended and that you know Engel's paper it's a bit like uh, the impingement model in the shoulder world that was based on an opinion piece actually Engel's original paper was very much that an opinion piece but I think for me what it was and what it offers is a kind of philosophy of care but also a clinical guide so I think central to the biopsychosocial model for me is really acknowledging the inherent individuality of a patient's experience but the biopsychosocial model was absolutely intended as a communication tool that that kind of placed that patient experience at the forefront of the assessment not almost as an afterthought so Engel was in a really unique position because he did an internship where he was a a physician and a psychiatrist so he did two roles and that's really where he recognised that suddenly he couldn't explain everything within that biomedical framework and that actually you had to understand the person to understand why individual experience was so different. So really, it was an early, for me, it was an early example of what we now call complexity theory. Is that the multifactorial nature of somebody's pain or illness experience is perhaps a bit overwhelming sometimes as a clinician. But what I love about the biopsychosocial model is it was a way of actually making it simple and placing your communication skills at the forefront in a way of understanding the patient narrative, but importantly, being able to validate that experience, if you like, and signpost the way forward. So I think for me, first and foremost, it was absolutely that kind of conceptual framework of how to approach your healthcare interaction and the importance of that therapeutic alliance. Um, and, and as I say, for me, again, when you look at how it's applied now, it was very much you can't divide the biological, the psycho and the social and all those other things that affect somebody's pain. The fact is they all interact very context dependent, dependent on somebody's life experience. But also it wasn't just about um, the patient and our communication. It was also about our potential effect on that patient. So the social within the biopsychosocial model was never about just the patient. It was about us as healthcare practitioners 
and our ability to influence their experience, their recovery. So a good example would be a doctor tells a patient, I'm sorry, they'll all be shoulder analogies, Ben, because I can't talk about it. Oh, no, no, can't talk about shoulders, You You have to use a hip analogy. Show your diversity. Oh, my God. Okay, so a hip. So patients can be told by a doctor that they've got a labral tear. I'm the physiotherapist who doesn't hear any consistent history with that. And the, maybe the medic's just done a few clinical tests but hasn't seen the bigger picture. But then if I offer a different diagnosis, I potentially drive fear, that incongruence of information. So that's one example. Um, but also that very hierarchical traditional medical model, how we approach our patients and maybe don't give them the opportunity to tell their story. So I think it's also about just reflecting on ourselves ourselves in that social and looking at our ability to both improve and negate that kind of recovery so I guess I guess those are the highlights for me but I guess it's just back to collaborative clinical reasoning and hearing the patient narrative and it just gives you a, a framework to highlight all the different areas that you need to consider but not try and reduce them to those individual things look at how they all interact yeah there, there's been uh, one of the descriptions I've heard of the, the the BP, I can't be bothered to say the biopsychosocial every time, so I'm going to abbreviate. Um, I haven't got that type of energy in my life anymore. Um, we're going to abbreviate. So uh, I've heard it described as two-person medicine sometimes, a way of looking at the BPS. And I think that's quite nice, isn't it? That, you know, I, I think when you look at Engel's hierarchy, that was the second level, wasn't it? We had the first, you had that kind of middle level, which is the patient. And that second level, which is the patient and the doctor. And actually, that whole dynamic often changes, doesn't it? As soon as you put another person into the relationship, that whole um, dynamic changes. Do you think we consider that enough within within the biopsychosocial model? Oh, I think that's I think that's a great question. And that's a, and a great observation. It's a real extension of that social aspect, isn't it? Yeah. And all those kind of different influences. Um I think we consider it when we see it as barriers. I think when, you, do you know what I mean? But I don't yeah. know that we necessarily foster it enough in terms of how it can positively influence things. So yeah, maybe that is a lacking actually. I hadn't, it's, that's a really interesting question. I certainly, I, I guess for me, I always look at those other influences and what they've been told before or, you know, what next door neighbor's dog said or that everybody's got an opinion, haven't they? And everything's influenced by that wider social set and stuff. But in terms of that actual therapeutic relationship, I guess I always consider it in how it's informed beliefs and the story so far. Mm. Um, and I guess going forward, if somebody else is being involved, I'm always striving to try and ensure there's some congruence of information and, and the narrative that we're giving patients. But no, I think that's a, I think, no, I don't think we do. <laughs> Sorry, the short answer was the non-political joke. No, we don't, Ben. <laughs> uh, and the other point that you brought up there, which I think is very under, um, you know, underutilised, is the idea of the BPS model as one of self-reflection. I think often we kind of use it to reflect on others and don't always reflect on what we do and how we do it and how we're interacting. And so... Um, certainly for me, I think that's one of the really underutilized perspectives of the biopsychosocial model is it's not about the other. It's actually sometimes about us as well. And, you know, understanding our influence and our role and, uh, and things like that. And do you think we maybe focus on other the other person, the, the patient or the person or whatever you want to call them a little bit much within yeah. within our current perspective? Absolutely. Because I, and I think there's quite a lot of evidence that shows that and essentially shows that your 
your interaction with that patient is immediately influenced by your experiences. I, I'm sorry, I am going to use the word epistemology because I love it, but your own epistemological bias. So I just love that. So the, what you, the nature of knowledge and how you've yeah. acquired that essentially has a massive influence on how you then view that patient in front of you, the people that have taught you, your own social set, your own kind of social influences, cultures, etc. And all those things inherently influence how you approach that patient. So if you never reflect on that, you just keep perpetuating a behavior, you keep perpetuating a belief. And so I think when you look at some of the exciting stuff that's coming out in terms of philosophy, I have to say most of the people who talk about it are just way too clever and I don't <laughs> understand a lot of it. But what, what I like is that you have to reflect on your own philosophical stance in terms of the things that matter to you because by their very nature, they will influence how you deliver information to that patient the things that you will pick up on in terms of the communication or the story that they're giving you. So no, and I think actually that should be a starting point in terms of any communication intervention, anything in terms of looking at this model of care is, is understanding your own beliefs and how you've been affected really by your career, how you've been taught, all those sorts of things. And we're often trying to get patients to do that self-reflection, aren't we? We're trying to get them to, you know, understand their beliefs better, how they built them. As you say, our kind of epistemology. epistemology. I, <laughs> I just that. love that word. I did that for comic <laughs> effect, epistemology. Um, but, you know, we're often asking, aren't we, patients to do things like cognitively restructure and examine their beliefs and, and do this kind of real you know, uh, analysis of what they believe and why they believe it and how it changes their behaviour. Are we lacking that from our own perspective? And if we had that a little bit more, would it help us drive other people's reflection potentially? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, but I think you, what you've highlighted there, Ben, and just what you're talking about, I think the trouble is, we have this acceptance that we have to use some of these approaches. But if we're honest, we kind of suddenly meant to have this amazing skill set that allows us to do it. And I think the trouble is some of that self-reflection is actually facing the fact that it's hard and yeah. behavioral change and changing beliefs and all those things is very difficult. And actually believing that you've got the skills to do that or being given the skills to do that is hard. So actually you can see why that then has an impact on how people approach their patients. Yeah, I, I suppose, you know, it is, it is difficult, isn't it, to ch not only go to work, do a job, have pressures, but then also to kind of self-examine yourself as well at the same time. Uh, and it kind of <laughs> reminds me of, of good old Roger Kerry's blog when he said, I, I think it was called I'm Not Paid Enough to Think or, or that was from a few years ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it kind of, you know, I, I can understand why a, it's difficult for patients um, to change their perspectives and their viewpoints. And, you know, as much as it's difficult for patients, it's also difficult for for us as well. But if we're going to improve this usage of, of the BPS model, is that self-reflection something that maybe has to happen? I, th I think it's I think to, if I'm honest, it's an important part of just continuing to develop as a clinician. I mean, I, when I when I look at my own journey with this and I did a communication module again as part of my master's and. To be honest, I mean, bearing in mind that was in, I did it quite late, so it was 2005, I think, so I'd been working a long time by then. And I kind of thought I was an all right communicator, you know, really cared about my patients, wanted to get them better. Believe me, Ben, I talk too much. I know that's hard to believe. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I joined the club. I was, I was just set to transmit, and I really thought I was helping, and actually I probably wasn't. And it was really shining that mirror and realising that actually – 
you weren't very not not very good I mean it wasn't I wasn't very good baby I don't know I wasn't as good as I could be and there were some fundamental things I was doing that stopped me being able to help my patients in the way that I wanted to so I I just think we just all have to realize that the whole fun of this job is you never stop learning and that self-reflection and identifying where your weaknesses are or what you can do differently or where you bias I think are fun because that's what keeps you developing but yeah I do I think it's really important I probably self-reflect too much and bang myself over the head with a stick too much but I, I think it's an important part yeah, I mean, that's uh, you brought up the point of talking too much. And, you know, that's something that any, any if anyone's ever listened to me, they know that I suffer from that problem as well. Um, but even this morning, I, you know, one of the things I have always found challenging is when to, you know, sometimes you need to talk more and sometimes you need to talk less. And it's actually, you know, but sometimes a patient's waiting for some information and other times they're waiting to tell you something. And it's really, really difficult to know when to when to do what, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it is. But again, it's like if you think the crazy thing for me about communication is that in fact, this is something that comes off a lot on webinars about all sorts of different subjects is that actually it's still not consistently taught at undergraduate level in in all physiotherapy schools and you know often when I do my course about shoulders when I sit there and you know (laughs) one of the questions I'll always ask is you know how many people have done some form of communication skills training and sometimes only two or three people out of a group of 24 put their hands up and that's not to criticize anybody but it is our I kind of say communications our superpower it's just it's the underpinning principle of the BPS but arguably all our that you know our therapeutic alliances interactions because that's what makes them successful yeah I mean I'm going to go a step further and say you know even beyond our professional realm just life isn't it you know, yeah. communication, people who are good communicators, it's certainly a special skill. And some people maybe have it more intrinsically um, than others. But I think, you know, I, that self-reflection for me has always been a bit of a key with communication, that the first point of communicating better is probably actually reflecting on it and understanding it and appreciating that it is a an important point in the first place yeah sorry I'm just getting the giggles I'm just thinking yeah it's great I did some communication skills training with my team came home tried it out on my 18 year old I said I'm not an expert (laughs) I failed in the first hurdle so yeah the skill set's great (laughs) sometimes it's still challenging (laughs) but then again I don't think there's actually anything more varied you know and we talk about the variance of you know bones and bony parameters and you know these type of things and then actually probably the most variable thing that we have in human civilization is probably communication forget movement and all these other things you know if you can imagine people's different personalities and you know communication is 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 definitely not just a theoretical skill yeah no absolutely and I think you're right I think it's definitely that thing that some people inherently are very good at it but I but but I also think people shouldn't be disempowered if they find it tough because there's a really simple skill set that can just improve a lot what you do yeah yeah absolutely so look I, I think that we've probably got quite similar perspectives there on that you know what is the biopsychosocial model in terms of um maybe being something different to what a lot of people talk about so my next question then is what do you think the dominant perspective of the biopsychosocial model is currently 
well basically that venn diagram with the three circles with bio psycho and social in so a very reductionist approach to engels model and he never drew that he drew in his original um papers it was much more like the vector diagram that i think matt lowe described in his dispositional causation paper um very much you know how things could shift health or illness one way or the other um so that and i think it's inherent to the fact as humans we need explanatory systems to make stuff simple and make it very easy to understand but that is how it's fundamentally been misunderstood and misapplied because if you look at teachings and research very similarly they've tried to reduce it into those three domains and by the very nature of the model those things interact they're not divided into those three circles so i think that's probably one of the biggest issues in terms of its current applications i think the other thing that's interesting i can't remember where i was speaking about it but one of uh, there was a couple of clinicians in the audience got very kind of not upset but they were very much yeah but the, the psychos out <laughs> it was you know when you're like whoa but it was like very much that that psychological domain um was out of their scope and it's not something mm-hmm. they should be trying to do but actually again Engel's model was very much you know daily stresses just life anxiety all the kind of beliefs and the fear avoidance stuff that we hear about you know all it was all about those things and acknowledging them as much as it was about yeah of course if people have got true mental health issues you might want to signpost another clinician but again that's what he was trying to do is kind of signpost who was right to help that patient but but the psycho was never about be a psychologist it was about let's understand that life experience life stresses all these things can impact somebody's pain or illness experience so I think that's another area where it's um massively kind of misunderstood um and then the third thing probably is things like yellow flags which have kind of been a development of the the biopsychosocial model and unfortunately have become synonymous with obviating certain paths of care or directing a particular path of care and I think again what it that that misunderstanding or that misinterpretation is it was always about each individual those things will interact differently and when you look at maybe some of the questionnaires that are used to measure the psycho or the psychosocial Mm. a lot of them don't even have any content validity so you're directing a path of care by trying to reduce all these things to something measurable but if they all interact differently, depending on context and experience for a patient, that ain't ever going to do it. So it kind of highlights the challenges, but that's probably why it's been reduced to these three circles. Yeah, I, I sometimes describe it as a kind of what we've done is viewed. We view the BPS model through a biomedical lens in that what we're trying to do is we're trying to kind of do the opposite of what Engel was saying is that now we're trying to actually turn it into this treatment model where we're taking these isolated factors and we're measuring them and and trying um, to treat them. So, you know, I, I think that potentially that's... Do you, I mean, do you, do you see that... Do you think maybe it's been turned into too much of a treatment-based model rather than, as you first described it, the philosophy of care? Yeah, definitely, yeah. Absolutely, because I think it was it was absolutely a philosophy and a clinical guide in terms of that communication and therapeutic alliance. And I don't think it was ever it, it, it actually if you, if you look at his original, there was a three key papers and, and that he did one about medical education as well. And it was all about yeah. the communication and it was all about kind of, if you like, validating the patient's pain experience, but acknowledging those things were contributing, not about siloing them and trying to sort each one out independently. It was more about shining a light on that experience and the things that were contributing and that 
offering a path forward, I guess. So, yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I think actually even, you know, trying to delineate and measure and then actually, you know, having research based on these outcomes and things like that kind of really go against the spirit sometimes I see of the biopsychosocial model. I think actually the current perspective, I think might be better described as a multi-dimensional pain model rather than a biopsychosocial model. Yeah, I think I think that's really fair, Ben. I think the only thing I would say, I, I think when I read some of these amazing papers that are coming out by very clever people using lots of big words, I think it's fabulous and and kind of trying to make that multidimensional element of pain transparent is key. But as a clinician, we want to be careful that we don't disempower clinicians. I think the, the attraction in some ways of the biopsychosocial model is its simplicity in that it kind of signposts a framework for clinicians to think in. Um, something's gone weird with the microphone, has it? Or is it okay? No, no, I think we're all good. Oh, I can, I, I can hear two of me. That's slightly disarming, but that's I, fine. I, I, I'll carry I, I, on I, if it's good at you your know. end. <laughs> well, that's good. Lucky you. It's not good in duplicate, I can tell you. Um, so, yeah, because I, I, I absolutely get what you say. And I think, you know, I I guess I feel defensive of the biopsychosocial model purely because its current interpretations don't represent what Engel intended. Yeah. However, I absolutely understand that developments in, you know, pain sciences and cognitive sciences and philosophy, all these things kind of offer more to the party. And yeah. you're absolutely right in terms of that multidimensional thing. But for me always, it's how do you, help a clinician be confident having a framework to approach that patient to be able to acknowledge the uncertainty we're told we've got to embrace but equally give them the confidence that patients want to signpost a path of recovery yeah does that make sense yeah no I look I I totally we need something that's broad enough to be workable um, or sorry, narrow enough to be workable, but broad enough that it, that kind of encompasses the concepts as well, um, which is a really, really difficult place to get to, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And so, I mean, I still. So. All right. Here's a question then. So how would you say that you uh, kind of integrate the, the a biopsychosocial perspective into your clinical into your clinical workings what are some of the things that you know you're thinking about and and trying to to implement well i ironically after everything we've discussed i i kind of if you look at what engel did originally it was expand that biomedical model to acknowledge those other things that affected it and i think you know in terms of the role of i have in a job i still have to rule out biomedical causes whether it be a nasty whether it be somebody's fallen over and torn something and whether that's relevant but I guess it just it massively influences how I approach the consultation. So certainly when I was a, you know, a junior physio and I'd done certain postgraduate training, it was very much where's your pain, what makes it better, what makes it easier. Establish my sin factor, which still makes me yeah. giggle to this day. Oh, I love a bit, um, of England. A bit of sin factor, absolutely. <laughs> But now it's like, you know, tell me the story of why you're here today or tell me the story, whatever words I might use, but a very open question. And then I just shut up and listen, because I think, again, the communication literature is clear that if you just give people the space to tell that story, generally, they'll give you a lot of the extra information about the things that matter to them or the things that are worried. And it's kind of front ending it really with identifying their ideas, their concerns, their expectations as a way then because then you have your language then you have a kind of narrative if you like in terms of what you might do with your objective and how you might sum it up at the end so I guess it really the biggest influence it has is affecting 
how I structure my assessment and, and how I interact with that patient. So here we go. Here's a question then. So if based on that, you know, I, I mean, I was taught and I expect you were taught as well. You sit there with your kind of intake sheet and you go through it and you do, you know, that very orderly kind of process, aggravating and easing, blah, de blah, de blah. Um, how do you think that approach fits with a more modern biopsychosocial perspective? How might you change that kind of implementation of what we do in clinic? Because I think sometimes that becomes a habit, doesn't it? You fill in your intake sheet in a very orderly way. You know, sometimes could it be that we change that process? We, we, we're less interested in, in that straight off the bat? I don't know. Well, I think I, I think for me, I front end it by hearing that yeah. story and what matters to the patient. And I yeah. think often if you do, if you don't mention the word pain and use a more kind of open question, then often they will tell you other stuff that's worrying them as well, whether that's work relationships, whatever, as well as the thing that's causing them a problem or things they've been told they didn't like. But I think what we have to be careful of is that kind of biomedical bit is our safety net because, yeah. you know, it's like if I've got somebody that, I don't know, has failed treatment, um, they may have some instability. They haven't given me enough information that helps me rule in or rule out whether they might have a label tear that might need surgery. I may have to ask some more questions, but I think the difference is with a biopsychosocial approach, that questioning about past medical history, what medication they're on, questions that help me rule in or rule out the relevance of a structural element come after right. I've heard what happens to the patient. So I think it's the order of things. Whereas, I mean, I do smile now when I hear some of the students or the junior physicians go, what drugs are you taking? Which is where I'm working can be an interesting question to right. ask people. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but, you know, and that you can hear them going through this checklist and kind of, I, I always remember the fabulous Louis Gifford saying, if you just let people talk and then you go and fill your list in, a lot of the time they've answered most of the questions and actually yeah, you won't yeah, have a yeah. lot to ask them when you go back. But then I think it's having confidence as a clinician that you have that background knowledge to know when you need to question further or actually know this is just a simple you know, non-traumatic shoulder pain that's gone on for a long period of time because this pe person's having a difficult time in their life. But I think you have to have that biomedical safety net for one of a better expression to make sure that you signpost the optimal path of care for a patient. No, I think that's a great point. But traditionally, you know, I think we're all probably trained to do that stuff straight off the bat go through yeah. through the form in a very systematic way and then kind of at the end maybe that was the point where you talk to people about other stuff you know like that that bps rubbish that that might be going on um yeah and interesting if you look at the community there's a great to a uh, book by jonathan silverman which is all about communication and he talks about the calgary cambridge guide to um the initial consultation and it's exactly that it's just front end it with the right. psychosocial hear the story yes and get to the other stuff because then the communication research suggests patients are far more likely to engage they're going to trust you quicker because you're listening to the stuff that matters to them so it is kind of a restructuring yeah and i i you know i think that people should as long as you get the information in us in, in within your time frame it, does it matter when it comes or even how it comes and i but I think that you, you did make a great point there. It's about having that confidence, isn't it? Uh, and, and maybe that transition to doing it in a different way is going to be challenging because it's, it's, it's a safety net, but also a comfort zone. Yeah, totally. Because, yeah, but that's back to that whole thing about causation, isn't it? It's really nice if you can blame a tissue. 
and say, oh, yeah, if I do this to it, you're going to get better. But we just know that doesn't do it, you know. So for, but to me, in my job, if somebody might need surgery, then it is important that I signpost that. But, yeah. you know, the majority of cases, it ain't. But I need to know I've asked the question so that I'm not shortchanging the patient. So, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, there's definitely an experience. But I think it's also giving people that are learning sound clinical reasoning skills because then actually that becomes very easy. Yeah. Um, and, and I think one of the other things that maybe we see when we do, even if you do find, you know, something that you need to signpost somewhere else, I think there's sometimes a perspective that because you find something biological, it rules everything else out. Um, you know, it's kind of this, if we separate them, oh, it's a bio problem, it's a disc or a nerve or a tail or whatever. And suddenly that rules everything else out and, it, and you know, deal with the bio thing and everything else will just solve itself. And I'm not entirely sure that's the truth. No, I completely agree. And I think, you know, I think that's highlighted by the fact that patients who fail physio who then have surgery don't necessarily do well with surgery. Do you know what I mean? I think you're absolutely yeah. right. And that's why from the and I think that's a great point because I think the other place where perhaps the model's been misinterpreted is it's become very synonymous with people with persistent pain yeah. and actually it was always intended to be from the outset if you highlight these things then actually you can stop somebody becoming a persistent pain problem because you'll highlight yeah. the things that are contributing from the outset so ironically having said I don't like that three ball thing sorry the Venn diagram thing god brain not good <laughs> it's, right. it's the three, the three balls ball. is fine with me and it's it's anatomically strange, but that's fine. But there you go, hey. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Um, but it's essentially I will sometimes draw a big circle yeah. with those three domains inside and just or do a mind map or do a vector diagram. And as the patient's talking, say, Oh, I'm just gonna scribble the stuff because it's really useful and or make notes at the end, depending on how I do it. I'm not very good at writing because I quite like to have all that non-verbal and listening and nodding and all that eye contact. Yeah. But essentially it's then a visual kind of representation of everything they've told them and and often that the patient themselves will see that reflect on it and go oh that's why when I'm stressed my pain is worse or that's why when I have a bad night's sleep etc so I think actually the simplicity of it in some ways can be a really useful visual for patients but whether you do a vector diagram three circles whatever the key is that you just shine a, a light that gives them a framework and a validation to go forward yeah, I mean, look, if I was a, if I was a runner, Joe, and I must, I went out for a run this morning. I hated every single step of it, and wouldn't describe myself as a runner in any way, shape, or form. I just do it. <laughs> but let's say that I actually ever got to a level where I ran too much, which is never going to happen, and I got a stress fracture. It wouldn't stop this, having a stress fracture, which we might describe as a biological problem. You know, there's a there is a pathology to find. Um, doesn't stop me from getting depressed because I can't run. And it doesn't stop me if I have a bad night's sleep from increasing the pain from my stress fracture. You know, and I, I think sometimes that does seem to be this perspective that, you know, if we can find a problem psychologically, it rules out the biology. If we find a problem biologically, it rules out something else. And, and you know, I, I just think sometimes that goes back to that biomedical mindset that you've, you're looking for the problem that singular problem that you can then um, you can then fix and, and solve. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. And I think that, again, it's that almost that need to reduce things so you can cure yeah. rather than care and, and try and solve the problem, whereas sometimes it isn't. And I, and I, and I think what, what I love about what you said there, though, is I think sometimes we're, we're at risk of straying too far from the biomedical. And I absolutely get, you know, where we're at in terms of our understanding of nonspecific pain 
but you know I had an experience with my son who had an ankle injury and you know it was the usual just rehab just rehab and you know when your son's telling you he feels like his ankle's going to fall off when he tries to kick a football and that's his life and yes he's depressed because he can't play exactly all the things you said and you know he has a scan and he has surgery and he's fine do you know what I mean? Because yeah. he had no ligaments left in his ankle. So I think it, it's really difficult as a clinician because you're quite right. You've got to kind of have, you've got to be confident about the biomedical. And it's very easy, I think, with all the developments in the psychosocial domain to almost explain away every pain that every patient has as being psychosocial yeah. and almost lose that element of suspicion with the biomedical. And I think what, what you're saying that's so important illustrates what we said at the very beginning is these things interact yes and the key is what that means to their care yeah absolutely and um you know i yeah it can't be a model you know and 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 our friend peter stillwell wrote about this as well didn't he Uh, you know that kind of this separation type of thing that i think he described it very neatly as a trichotomy which is quite a nice little play play on words there from um peter who's uh peter's almost too nice actually He's a Canadian. He's a very, very clever. Very yeah, clever. Abs- I mean, I, yeah, I, 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 love, I love his paper. I absolutely love it. But I think it brings us back to that thing is what I love about his paper and this building on that 4E cognition model is that, you know, again, it kind of signposts the complexity. But for me, always, it's like, well, what does that then mean to a clinician as to how yeah. to they then approach their interaction? Yeah. And, and that has to be the, you know, that. It's getting the philosophical side of it into actually something to, to do, doesn't it? Because we can kind of pontificate on the philosophy or we can try and get it done in terms of something to do and apply it. And either way, we haven't actually really got to the essence of it. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I, kind of, I read things and I'm just like, oh, I'm just not clever enough. But then I think, yeah, but basically it's just about being nice and listening and actually picking yeah. up what matters to the patient. So, I, I, you know, and I think it's that kind of middle ground, isn't it, of making it doable, but acknowledging it's complex. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's all too much for me, Joe. It gives me, I need a, a lie down after I read some of these. I need to go and read the Beano after I read some of these papers, something far more, far more at my level. So here we go. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you uh, our last question, I think. What do you see as the future of the um, biopsychosocial model for, for, you know, maybe on two levels, maybe from a research perspective and then also maybe also from a clinical perspective? Oh, I think this is such a great question. I think for me, the, the issue at the moment is that there's a there's almost a rail against the BPS. Everybody acknowledges it had promise, but obviously the way it's been adapted is not how it was intended. So it's like, and unless you kind of go back and and if you like, ensure that going forward because if we're really honest there's not a massive amount of research to validate it and any research that has been done has been done based on a misinterpretation rather than what Engel's intention was but I think as a philosophy of care it's definitely still got potential but I think it just signposts that the need to invest in communication skills. Yeah based on that do you think we can actually measure the success of the BPS model via outcomes such as things like pain? Oh, Ben, that's a horrible question. Yeah, but you, <laughs> you, you've done so It's a great question. Yeah, because I think almost if you see it as a philosophy of care, does it matter what outcome you get? 
But I think that's back to like communication and patient-centered care. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you, you can measure satisfaction. Yeah. You measure phenomenologically. I can't even say that word. You can Phenomenologically. Imagine... <laughs> yeah, whatever that is. <laughs> but you, can, you can absolutely, um, you can qualitatively evaluate yeah. in terms of using those types of research. And I think they're far more appropriate if you're going to yeah. look at applying a philosophy. I think that's a brilliant a brilliant point absolutely but I think going forward I guess for me to me it is purely a tool to highlight that communication is are the scaffold I love that from yeah. that Delucio King paper yeah. that communication is kind of the scaffold of what we do to explore that patient pain experience so I guess that for me it's back to that lovely question you asked about how does it affect my approach it's about structuring your interaction with your patient to basically set you up for success and really get to the nub of things within that biopsychosocial framework. So I guess for me, the future is acknowledging how important our communication is, but also putting training in place that is reflective of that. A bit like you were saying about the self-reflection, mm. giving clinicians the tools to then be able to go forward with it in a more representative way. Yeah, because, uh, you know, we have this empirical view don't we we're going to look at all these different drivers of pain we're going to measure that as an outcome measure of pain that's my primary outcome measure um could you do that all in a way that didn't have any bearing on a, a philosophy of care or good communication do you see what i mean that we could have we could be we could try and treat pain in a biopsychosocial way without ever actually behaving in the spirit of the biopsychosocial model. Wow. <laughs> Say that again. Yeah, so what I mean is, Sorry. if we're saying it's about reflection, if we're saying it's about a philosophy of care, that I could do all those things that were good for the patient, but might not have a profound outcome on their pain. Whereas oh, I could do yeah. something else that has a profound outcome on their pain, but involves none of the biopsychosocial um, you know, biopsychosocial factors that we've discussed. So is it appropriate sometimes to measure it via, via single outcome measure such as pain or disability? Does that almost miss the point? Oh, I, I love I love that. I really love that. Yeah, I think you're so right. And I think it just highlights the complexity. And because there's no, I know I'm really biased because the majority of patients I see, certainly in my NHS role, have failed treatment with other people. So that psychosocial domain becomes ever more relevant. But equally, there are patients, I'll never forget this lady coming in who had, oh, I don't know, eight years of shoulder pain, wanted an injection, had never had an injection. At the time, we were all into this two-point discrimination and left-right judgment and all that, measured all that, way abnormal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All abnormal, very excited. Uh, Reg went in. She wanted an injection, so we did an injection. Pain gone. Remeasured those things, all normal. Oh, my God. <laughs> what a head mess that was. And I think it is just, it, it's that, oh, I, I'm, I'm trying to think how to articulate it, you know, but that influence of those those expectations, those beliefs, all those other things that are entwined with everything that we've described. I think it kind of highlights why when you look at studies that seem to have completely incongruous um, outcomes, like, you know, anxiety and depression matters. No, it doesn't. Or self-efficacy, which I know is your favourite term at the moment. But, you know, <laughs> self-efficacy, does it matter or doesn't it? Or is it even a thing? But, you know, it, the fact is, with all those kind of things, they are so context dependent. Yeah. And the response will never be the same at a given time because of that contextual effect. It's kind of 
how are we going to measure it? Why yeah. are we trying to measure it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think I think you make a wonderful point. I love that. I, I I just don't know how we're going to, you know, because the point is that if we are going to measure it, you know, it from a positivist or from a um, from a kind of very empirical stance, that if it doesn't score well on those measures, is it a pointless endeavour? Is it something we should just throw away? Because if it's not, you know, that's that is what some people might argue that if it's not having an effect on these outcome measures that are popular, you know, or, or that are deemed to be the most relevant, then you could also almost argue that the biopsychosocial model, it, it, there is no point to it. Yeah, but but also, Ben, I think if you look at the experiences of things like the start back and CBT yep. that all had like amazing, like, you know, they were going to be the cure all for everything. And then you look at the longer term outcomes because of what they measured. It looks yep. like the intervention. Now, is it the failing of the intervention or is it the failure of the measurement? And I think that that is a God, we could talk about that forever, because I think we are so obsessed with measuring certain things. But actually, have we changed somebody's ability to live their life? Have we changed somebody's ability to do the things that they love to do as opposed to what they're scoring their pain on a visual analog scale or whatever other measurement we might need? So I, I, we probably do need a completely um, different philosophical approach to what we're measuring. But I think, all right, mixed methods research and qualitative research are getting much more of an audience now, but we're still we're still driven by the randomized control trial aren't we by its very nature which reduces things in terms of measurement so i think yeah in terms of going oh, it's well i mean big, look that's that's <laughs> way above my pay grade joe i'm not even gonna <laughs> go into that but that was my point recently with this idea of self-efficacy that you know self-efficacy is not just this overall quality it's actually specific to an action um and so do measures of pain self-efficacy actually encapsulate or um, take a good valid picture of this person and their life? And you could sometimes say, you know, it might give me a measure of something. I like to think maybe it's pain overall pain confidence, but it might be that there's this one thing that I don't do that really affects me that isn't actually captured in all those questions because 90 percent of things are good for me, you know, yeah. so. I, I don't know how we're quite going to reconcile that, but I do think that we need to think about how we are going to move forward and measure something like the biopsychosocial model. And, and currently, if we we have this idea that's dominated by, you know, these specific outcome measures, is it, you know, is that the point? Uh, and I think that's something that kind of we, that's really what we've encapsulated maybe in this discuss, discussion. Yeah, absolutely and I, yeah no I think that's so I, I love that and I think the thing is for me is if when you look at the things that are most associated with patience and satisfaction and a positive experience it's all those things like empathy being heard in terms of listening yeah. to their expectations you know all those things within that therapeutic alliance so but actually when you look at how often they're measured no it's how was what was your pain level when you came out or what was yeah. this when you came out so no I, I, I think you're absolutely right because that we, we we could also say that about empathy. If empathy doesn't have a big effect on pain, then it's not worth doing. Mm. That would be our current. But it does. But it does have yeah, a big I mean, effect I on mean, pain. It's, it's a bit variable. Um, and it, you, <laughs> I, well, I, I just pick the papers that stroke my bias, Ben. So yeah, 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 yeah. You, like all things, there's a, there's a variability <laughs> in that. But if, you know, it's like sitting down and listening to a patient. Is it the right thing to do? Yes. 
you know, but if it doesn't measure well in research, are we going to get rid of it because it doesn't have a big effect on whatever the outcome measure is? Uh, and I, I, I think that's the big thing that for me, that's the big issue that, that we see. And maybe how we reconcile those two perspectives would potentially be a future direction. But, you know, Joe, what the hell do I know? I'm just a dude on the Internet who talks too much. <laughs> But I think what you just said there, and I think it almost takes us full circle to where we started, yeah. is that the biggest evidence base for anything we do is communication. And actually, that is what the biopsychosocial model is all about. So and that's in terms of patient satisfaction, in terms of quality of life measures, whatever, not so yeah. much about pain. So to me, it kind of takes us full circle that actually the best we can do going forward is make sure we're doing our communication really well and hearing our patients, because there's no doubt if we don't give them the space to disclose the things that matter to them, that is a barrier to us helping them. So I guess it would still cement that as the centre for me. I mean, I I completely agree. Um, here's a question, just to finish off. If you found out that that had no effect on people's pain or disability or function, would you still do it? Yeah. Yeah, me too. And I think that's the key. <laughs> and I, but I think that's the key point, isn't it? Is that you aren't yeah. doing it always for the outcome measure. You're doing it for the person who's sitting in front of you, because maybe that's the, you know, uh, maybe the spirit of, of what we've tried to, to get across today. Yeah, and I think that, again, that's a lovely way of going back to Engel about putting the human back into healthcare. You know, yeah. it's about that individual in front of you and, and giving them a narrative that essentially sets them on a positive path. And that's that's empowering for both, hopefully. Yeah, well, I mean, that uh, as far as I can work out, the biggest complaints that I get from people interacting with medical system, healthcare, etc., is that no one listened. They weren't that interested. They were short. They were curt. You know, it it, it it was only about the problem itself. And that is exactly what Engel talked about, the humanism, that that human aspect is taken out of healthcare. So if we really want to get into the BPS model, we kind of got to add that back in somewhere, I think. Absolutely. And that and that's, again, as I say, back to that structure in the assessment yeah. and hearing the patient's story. And it's not just about their pain. And if you look at it, I mean, I think that's where the quality of research is useful because it shines a light on that and says patients want to be heard. Yeah. And actually, the way we set healthcare system up, you know, as, as few as 40 percent of patients will actually tell you everything that matters to them in a typical intervention because they're not given space to tell their story. So if nothing else, we just need to shut up and listen a little bit more. I'm going to take that on board, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been trying, Ben. <laughs> yeah, it, look, it's a wonderful idea. I just, I'm, I just suck at it. <laughs> All right, Joe. Look, it's been uh, a wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and hopefully, you know, we've shined a different perspective on the BPS model. I don't know whether it's a right or a wrong perspective. Maybe it's not even about right and wrongs. It's just about different perspectives. Um, where can we find you, Joe? Joe, if we needed you, where could we find you? <laughs> well, I've got the worst Twitter handle ever at ShoulderGeek1, which I just live it. I can't believe how thick I was when I set that up. But anyway, that's on there. Um, that's probably the easiest place to find me, to be honest. I do quite a lot of free stuff on the Clinical Edge uh, Facebook page, lots of free uh, webinars, kind of quite often about all things to do with the shoulder. Um, so, yeah, but Twitter's probably the best place in terms of contacting me or finding out what I'm up to. Excellent. Right. Well, Joe, it's been a pleasure. Um, we won't tell people about our super secret project quite yet. We'll let them find <laughs> out for themselves. But we've uh, we've been interacting around this subject for a little while, but we'll leave that bubbling away and percolating uh, in the background. So, Joe, pleasure. 
take care. Thanks so much for asking, Ben. It's been great chatting to you today.